Romans 2, starting in verse 25. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way, to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it was written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Thanks, Dan. Um, before we begin with the word, let's, let's open in, in prayer. Lord, um, it has been a very tumultuous week in our nation and indeed across the world. Um, the pandemic was, was certainly a lot to deal with, and now the unrest. And so, Lord, we uh, thank you that the violence seems to be um, tamping down, seems to be slowing down. And Lord, um, I'm grateful for the unity we're seeing on both sides of the political spectrum about the injustice that uh, Floyd, George Floyd uh, suffered. And I pray, Lord, that you might um, use that for multiple purposes, that we might actually begin to address the the uh, problems in our system in concrete ways we, we might be able to, to do something about. Uh, Father, also, I pray that this might begin to help us see both left and right, not as the enemy, but uh, that we are um, of different opinions, but still uh, common citizens of the nation that we live in. And uh, Lord, uh, in the midst of all of that, all that the chaos and the, the, uh, the struggle that we face, Lord, I pray that your church would be that third party that, uh, that third entity, Lord, that we would be um, not on the side of the left or the right, but Lord, uh, on the side of justice and rightness, Lord, because that's your side. And so, Lord, would you lead your church across America to be your prophetic voice in this nation? And uh, we just pray that, Lord, that you would uh, show yourself glorious through what seems like an impossible situation. Uh, have mercy, Lord, we pray. And Lord, I want to lift up uh, Tim Keller and uh, his cancer diagnosis. Lord, I thank you that it was found before it became a problem. And uh, Lord, we just pray that you would be with Tim and Kathy as they work through this, uh, remembering John Piper's words to not waste your cancer, but Lord, that they would uh, use this, this, uh, this hardship in their lives to, to evaluate what's truly important and what's truly right. And uh, Lord, we pray for uh, the chemotherapy to deliver Tim from the cancer. Uh, but Lord, I, I'm anxious to hear what he has to say on the other side of it. Uh, Lord, we lost Robbie Zacharias this, this year to cancer. And um, we know that there's, uh, there's no sure guarantee for Christians that they will not suffer. And uh, Lord, I pray that uh, 
the example of Ravi and, and maybe Tim now and, and others who are walking with you, Lord, may they be examples to us. So have, uh, have mercy on him, have mercy on Kathy and on their family, and, uh, and bless Tim with uh, what it is that you intend in this cancer. Show, uh, show your glory through that, we pray. And Lord, now as uh, we uh, long to gather together again as a church, Lord, I pray for our church leadership that we would be granted wisdom, that we would take care with uh, the, the task before us of deciding when and how to reopen. Lord, that we would remember that we are commanded to consider others as more important than ourselves. And uh, Lord, that we would be willing to set aside our preferences for the, um, the safety and the concern of other people. But Lord, we do long to meet again. And I think that is a godly impulse that you've put in us. So Lord, give us wisdom. Uh, give us uh, um, good pacing as far as doing it. And uh, Lord, most important, I pray that you would grant us great unity so that when we gather again together to sing and to worship and to praise you, Lord, that it would be a true, truly um, a glad and glorious event for all of us. And now, Lord, as we turn to your word, we pray that you would open our hearts and minds to what it is that you have to say. Lead us in the truth, we ask. Holy Spirit, we need you in these times. And so would you make your, your word clear to us? And uh, we ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So um, this is the first Sunday of the month, and usually we would celebrate communion, and uh, we're not, unfortunately. But I think what, what I would like to do, and, and we have to talk to, uh, together as a leadership team, is uh, I would love to, when we finally get to gather again, that we do communion whatever Sunday that is, that we just gather and we celebrate communion together. And who knows what that'll look like. That may be those little prepackaged communion cups with a wafer in it. It may bring your own, maybe bring your own communion. Um, that, I kind of like that idea because it's kind of biblical because that's what they were doing is, you know, somebody comes from home and brings wine and somebody else brings something else. And um, so uh, I'm just looking forward to not only worshiping with you all, but us uh, of what we have together as a church body. So um, with that, let's take a look at, uh, at the word. So uh, we're at the end of chapter two, the beginning of chapter three. And just as a reminder, uh, Paul is writing, this is my theory, is that Paul is writing this letter to Rome because he feels like he has finished his mission in the Mediterranean basin. And in the men's group, we were beginning to discuss Colossians, and it, it appears that Paul never went to Colossae. And yet Paul says, look, there's no room for me to work here anymore. Um, it's not that he had visited every single town and every village. He hit the major uh, metropolises that he wanted to. And now his plan, um, we see from the book of Romans, is he's going to go to Spain. Um, he wrote this before he visited Rome, the end of book of Acts. He's under house arrest in Rome. This was written before that. What he's doing, I think, in this letter is he's trying to connect with the Roman church and say, here's my gospel. Here's my mission. This is my plan. And, and see if they would be willing to support him as he now launches into, uh, into Europe. Um, so that's the theory behind it. So what's the, the message of Romans? What is his main point? Well, that's in chapter 1, verse 16. It's kind of his summary statement. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for everyone who believes. So it is salvation for everyone who believes. And that's kind of his, his outline for his gospel. But where he starts verses or chapters one through pretty much three, um, he starts with the need for salvation. So who needs to be saved? And so where he's been leading us through this is he started with the Gentiles. Um, he's, he reminded us the Gentiles, 
rejected God. What they could see of him in nature was clear, and they didn't want it, so they wound up uh, with minds that were futile. Their thinking was futile, and their hearts were darkened. And so what does that look like? Well, it doesn't look like they don't worship. What it looks like is they worship the wrong things. And so they worshiped images and the shapes of people and animals and all of that. And where that wound up, so their thinking is futile. Their, their brains have been affected because the ultimate reality, God as he is, they reject. So that, that messes up their thinking. Since they reject that God, they won't love him. Instead, they will love other things. That means their loves are now in disorder. They're upside down. They're scrambled. And where does that result? That results in practice. And so when the Jews or the moralists would look at them, they would say, look at what they're doing. They're practicing evil. They're inventing evil. They're slanderers. They're, they're disrespectful to parents. They're all of these things. And so that's kind of where it goes is it starts in the mind. It resonates in the heart and it produces fruit in actions. So we dealt with the Gentiles. The next people that, that um, uh, Paul looks to is what I termed the moralist. And so he says, you who would judge. So he looks to those people and he says, wait a minute, you guys are going to look down on the Gentiles doing those horrible things and you're going to judge them and you're doing them yourself. So it wasn't just the Jews, it was any moralist because there were good and upright moral uh, Gentiles who would condemn those actions as well. And then after he did that, then he moves to the Jews. And he says, if, if you're really Jew, if you, uh, you, you say that you're a Jew, then you have the law and you do these things. And you're going to be, you consider yourself a guide and a, and a teacher and all this. But aren't you doing that? Aren't you violating that very same law? So he, he, he then comes to that question of the Jews. So he's been moving us through these different types of people. And where he goes this week is he's going to take us to a place where the Jews can't retreat to. The, the thing that they think is, is the big symbol, the big sign of, of their special place. And he, he's going to cut that one off. He's going he's to seal that exit for them and say, no, you need to be saved too. You still need to be saved. Where he goes next week is it's the final nail in the coffin. He's going to basically say everybody needs to be saved, regardless of category. So that's where it's going to go next week. But this week he wants to, he wants to seal off this one last avenue. And so what he begins to talk about is he begins to talk about circumcision. So last week he mentioned, hey, you Jews, do you, you have the law and you, uh, you know what's right and what's wrong, but you don't do it. And now where he's thinking is he could say, well, the Jews could be saying, well, but I have circumcision. Um, what he's going to bring up, what Paul's going to bring up here is, is the question of what does it mean to be God's people? Is it just a circumcision and this external faulty um, um, cherry-picking obedience to his laws? What, what does it mean to be God's people? And what we're going to see is it's a matter of the heart. It, it, that's the problem, is it's a matter of the heart. We're back to the heart where we started from. So here he goes. He says, circumcision is indeed of value if you obey the law. So he, why drop circumcision in here real quick? Well, if you look at the beginning of chapter 3, he seems to flip back and forth between circumcision and being a Jew. And it's a value, and um, the other way he says it, is it a value or uh, what advantage does the Jew have? So the idea there is that the Jews would so identify their, 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 who they were with circumcision that you could use the terms almost interchangeably. As a matter of fact, that's how the Jews did it, is, is they would refer to the Gentiles as the uncircumcision. And so that's how central it was. That was how important it was to them. So he says, what value is, is there in circumcision? Does it mean anything? 
Well, yeah, it's great if you obey the law. But if you're not obeying the law, it's not going to help you. So um, we need to just pause for a second, look at circumcision, and then I'll remind us about Paul's use of the law. First of all, when he talks about circumcision, he, he compares it, he connects it to the law, but where did circumcision come from? Well, for the Jew, it came from Moses or from uh, Abraham. It was part of the Abrahamic covenant. But I think there's, there's a hint that the Jews associated it more with the covenant with Moses. They didn't see the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic covenant as two separate things, but as continuations. And the reason I say that is, is in John 7, 20, uh, 7, 21, 22, um, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and he says, look, I did a miracle. He says, I did one work and you marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision. And then he says in parentheses, not that it's from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. So you can see that there's a, a blurring of those two. And they're thinking more of circumcision is, is with the law. And when you look in the New Testament, that's how Paul treats it, is if you're circumcised, then you're under the law. You have to keep the law. So is there a value in circumcision? Well, yeah, there is, because if you obey the law, then, then you're in good position, because that's what circumcision did. That physical circumcision did was put you under the law. Um, it was a, a sign for who God's covenant people were. That was the mark of the covenant. That was the sign of the covenant that said, now you're under the covenant. So circumcision is good if you obey the law. Uh, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. Um, that doesn't sound so, that sounds kind of odd, like how do you get uncircumcised? But it, I don't think it has the same emotional impact for us that it would for the Jews. Because remember I said, the Jews said that Gentiles were the uncircumcision. So for Paul to say, if you don't keep the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision would be a huge insult to the Jews. You're saying I'm part of the uncircumcision? That's, that's outrageous. How can you say that? Um, so this also brings up another question. I said I was going to discuss the law a little bit. Um, it says, if you obey the law, then circumcision is of value. Now, we got to pause here for a second because what Paul is doing is, is he's playing with this idea of obedience to the law. But that's not the gospel. Remember what his gospel was at the beginning. It was salvation to everyone who does well, who is circumcised, who obeys all the law. No, that's not the gospel. The gospel is, circum is, uh, it is salvation to everyone who believes. So Paul is not forgetting that his gospel is a gospel of uh, uh, salvation by faith alone at this point. What he is saying, though, is he's saying um, this isn't perfectionism that I'm looking for. you got to look to what the law is really doing. And like I said, it's a very complicated idea in the book of Romans, the way Paul handles law. Uh, so when he mentions here that uh, circumcision is a value if you keep the law, he probably means at that point the entire law. Uh, all of the books of Moses, all that the, the law commanded there, um, ceremonial, civil, um, ritual, um, moral, all of those aspects of it he's probably referring to. Um, and circumcision is going to put you under that. But if you break the law, he says, then your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. It, it undoes that. So that mark that says you're God's people, not obeying God means you're not his people. So they're looking at it going, but we are because we've got this. And, and what Paul is saying in line with Jesus is just because you have that doesn't make you God's people. It's, it's not that simple. So how can circumcision become uncircumcision? 
Um, it can be because the mark is supposed to show that you are a people of God, but breaking his law or ignoring his law or distorting his law says, I'm not so associated with him, but I, I like the community. I like the, the idea of being under that. So the Jew could say, well, um, yeah, we break the law, but we have circumcision. We have God's covenant promise to us. And, and Paul is going to show us in a little bit why that won't work. So then he goes on, he talks about um, uh, the person who doesn't have the law, if they do keep the precepts of the law, will not their uncircumcision become circumcision? And so um, what's he getting at there? What he's saying is what he said last week, which is the Gentiles don't have the law. They haven't been given God's revelation in the law, but sometimes they bump into it and they do the right things. Sometimes they, they, they will behave the way the law is commanding. Um, and we said last week that was probably speaking of the moral aspects, not the ceremonial stuff. Jews or Gentiles didn't have the option to go to the, the temple and offer a sacrifice. But if they did what the law commanded, if they kept the precepts of the law, then they would be justified by that. They would be shown to be right by that. But what happens is they bump into it sometimes and they obey and they don't obey. And so their hearts accuse or defend them alternately back and forth. There's the same thing here is that idea of if they bump into it, then their uncircumcision is counted as circumcision. Well, how's that? Because they're acting like God's people. They're following who God is. They're doing what he has said that, um, that he, he wants his people to do. So that's the picture there is he's just picking up that, that image that he had last week and fleshing it out a little bit more um, and pointing to that, that covenant mark of circumcision. So what he says is this person who doesn't have the law, when he does that and is regarded as circumcision, it says, he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you. Um, how on earth does that work? Are, are the Gentiles going to stand up in that day and point to the Jews and say, I'm judging you because you didn't keep the law you had? Um, actually, there's, there's a little bit to help us with this is Jesus talking in Luke chapter 11. Uh, this is what he says, Luke 11, starting in verse 29. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks a sign, but no sign will be given it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so the Son of Man will be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. She came for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So the uncircumcised who keep the law, and we'll understand that a little bit better in a, in a moment, we'll, we'll unpack that some more, but the uncircumcised who keep the law they're the ones who will raise up at the judgment and will, will say, hey, they, they didn't do it. So the queen of the south came to hear Solomon's wisdom. The Jews of Paul's day wouldn't hear Jesus' wisdom, and yet something greater than Solomon was there. The people of Nineveh repented quickly when Jonah was preaching. Before he even finished his message, they were in sackcloth and ashes. The Jews of Paul's day rejected Jesus' preaching. They wouldn't repent. They said they didn't need to, and yet something greater than Jonah was there. So that's what he means by the, those at the end will rise up and will condemn you is because the Gentiles have heard the message and they've responded appropriately. So when they do what the law demands, what he's talking about is not 
obey all of those little strictures and all of those things, the law had a purpose. The law had a, a direction that it was supposed to take us. The law had all of those rules and, th and that expressed God saying, this is what humanity should be living like. This is a, an expression of what it should look like for you to live appropriately. But don't forget, it also had a rather elaborate and, and well-built Levitical priesthood and a sacrificial system. So what God built into the law was not just do this and live, but when you don't do that, here's the sacrifice that you must offer. So what does it mean to do the law, for them to fulfill the law, to follow what the law says, is here's the moral standard, aim in that direction, and when you fall short, go to the sacrifices. And what that is supposed to show you is you're not going to make it on your own. You're not going to live the way you should. Somebody else has to take the, the penalty for you. This lamb will take this sin, and that's it. But it was supposed to teach Israel repentance and, and a longing for something better so that when Jesus came and said, I'm going to take away the sins of the world, they would go hail and amen. But they didn't. So the queen of the south will raise up and judge them because she heard Solomon's wisdom. The people of Nineveh will raise up and judge them because they repented and they didn't. So here's where he goes with that. He says, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. So the, the problem is the, the, the way that Jews of the time were beginning to think is um, what I have to do is I have to be circumcised. And then when I'm circumcised, I've got that. And what I do then is I can I conform to this set of rules. And we know when we went through Luke, the, the Pharisees had built onto those rules so much that if you didn't violate or you struggled to not violate the Pharisees' rules, you wouldn't get to violating the other rules. And so therefore you'd be righteous, right? Um, so that's, that's the picture, is, is this external conformity to what God had said. Um, and and that, that circumcision was really a source of pride. Listen to what Paul says in Philippians 3. He says, if anyone else has a reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul had it. And that's that sense of pride, that sense of this is who we are, is we've got these things nailed down. And what Paul says right after that is, I consider that all rubbish. It, it all goes on the, on the trash heap because it wasn't worth it. It didn't do it. It's not enough to be a Jew outwardly, externally, in, in this, this outside way. It, it really is a matter of the heart. It comes down to a matter of the heart. So outward compliance isn't going to do it. What Paul says is, a Jew is one in, inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. So the Jews of the day were saying, well, we have Abraham as our father. And what John the Baptist did was he looked at him and he said, don't tell me that. That's not sufficient. God could raise up children to Abraham from these rocks. So don't claim that as the truth. What he was calling them to was repentance and to baptism. Put away your sins, put away your pride, put away all those things and turn because being a Jew is not outward, but it's inward. And circumcision isn't a matter of the flesh, it's of the heart. And it's not by the, the law or the letter of the law, it's by the spirit. So that was the problem was, was they kept rejecting um, those truths. When, when Paul went, remember when we went through Acts, Paul went and preached to them and they went, we don't want that. 
Um, now, the problem, this raises the issue of the problem of the Jews rejecting um, Jesus. And, and Paul will touch on it here, but it really flesh it out in, in uh, chapters uh, 9, 10, and 11, kind of where he's going to hit it. Um, but really what he's saying is you can't be God's covenant people and hate him. Or you can't be God's covenant people and be in, uh, indifferent to him. Um, it is a matter of the heart. So what does it mean that circumcision is a matter of the heart? Um, the answer comes, I think, in Colossians chapter 2, where he begins to flesh this out for us a bit. He says, in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. So that's the idea. So what he says is not, you don't have to be circumcised. What he says is you need a circumcision made without hands. You don't need to have a, your foreskin cut off. You need something much more radical and much more distinctive. It needs to be a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh, not just a piece of the body, the whole body of flesh. And what I think he's meaning there is he's talking about putting off the body of flesh the body and the flesh have to do with the sinful nature, and that needs to be cut away. Um, that, that doesn't mean we stop having physicality. It means that needs to stop being the ruling factor in our lives. So we need to have that circumcision done, and it's done without hands, and it's done by the Spirit. And then after we've done that, then we are baptized, and listen to where he keeps going with this. And also, you who were dead in your trespasses and... Um, the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So there again, that's the same kind of thing Paul is saying here is these Gentiles, they, they were uncircumcised of their flesh. God made them alive and he forgave them their sins. So there's this law that got nailed to the cross with Christ and it applied to the Gentiles as well as to the Jews. Um, even though the Gentiles couldn't come into the temple, even though the Gentiles couldn't become part of the, the commonwealth of Israel um, in certain cases, it, it's put away, it's put off. And how does that happen? It happens the same way it happened for the Jews, circumcision. But this is what's called Christian circumcision or the circumcision of Christ. It's made without hands. It's not done in the flesh. Um, as a matter of fact, in Ephesians 2.11, when Paul talks about circumcision, physical super circumcision, he says um, that it is a circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands. And so this is the contrast to that. It's not being a Jew. It is being the people of God. So that's the real mark is that heart circumcision that we have to have. Um, and it's applicable not just to Jews, but to Gentiles, not just to Jewish boys, but to Gentile people in, 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 in total, not excluding the Jews too. They're, they're part of it as well. So remember how this all started, right? The Gentiles have had their hearts circumcised. They have now been brought in. And this whole thing started off with the Gentiles didn't recognize God. So they worshiped all kinds of weird things. Uh, their hearts were darkened, or their, their hearts were darkened, their thoughts were futile, their loves became disordered, and they got all this weird stuff going in their lives, and that the moralist and the Jew would look at it and go, This is horrible. And yet, what he does is he says the, the problem resided in the heart and the heart needed to be circumcised. And so that's where he goes. That's what happened is the heart was circumcised. Um, that was that putting off of the old nature, that, that renewal that we came by. And he says, that's not by the law. That's by the spirit. 
So to become that kind of a person, what you need is the spirit to be at work in your heart. And that's why he ends chapter two by saying his praise is not from men, but from God. Um, in other words, it's not, gee, you were clever enough and you were smart enough. You could see your own sin and you were, you were strong enough and had the fortitude to put it away. Oh, good for you. Instead, it's from God because God did the work. So he says, this is the work that I've done in you. And now, look, you're, you're walking with me. And that's the important part of the message here is, is he's trying to persuade the Jews, your Jewishness is not sufficient to exclude you from the need for salvation. Um, it, it doesn't work that way. Now, he's come down pretty hard on the Jews at this point. So ver chapter 3, verse 1, he asks the question, well, what advantage is there to being a Jew or what value is circumcision? Um, Paul, are you saying that we should just throw all these away? Do you remember when, um, toward the end of Acts, when Paul is in Jerusalem and they arrest him, uh, the accusation between the Sanhedrin is he's preaching against Moses and our customs. And so this is that, that message is um, being Jewish and being externally Jewish isn't enough. <coughs> you need to have your heart circumcised. So now he's anticipating the question, he says, well, what advantage is the Jew? Are, are they just, you know, in, in, they got nothing? Did that whole redemptive history not count for anything? He says, no, they, they have an advantage much in every way. And to begin with, I'm not even going to give you the whole list. Let's just start at the beginning. Um, they were entrusted with the oracles of God. So what does he mean by the oracles of God instead of just the word of God? Well, what I think he means by the oracles is not just the written word, though that is great and that really is a blessing, but they had the prophets came to them. And not every word of every prophet was written down and put into scripture. So they have had this, this tremendous advantage of receiving the oracles of God, the, the word of God, the word of God in the scriptures, the, um, the uh, prophets had come to them. And so they have great advantage there. Their, their advantage is great in, in every way. Um, but the problem was they had that. They had these, the oracles of God. They had the written and the spoken word of God. And it wasn't enough because remember from chapter one, verse 13, for it's not the hearers, or chapter two, verse 13, for it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God. So it's not just that they have read the scriptures, that they have heard the prophets. It's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but it's the doers who will be justified. So they have this tremendous advantage that the Gentiles lack in that they have heard, but that's not sufficient either. It, it, you've got to go more. You've got to have more to it than that. So simply having it and hearing it won't cut it. So then Paul begins to ask that question, oh, well, wait a minute. What if some are unfaithful? Because um, you, you look at the, the Jews of Paul's day and there were numerous that had rejected Christ. There were a whole bunch that had accepted him, but there were many that had rejected him. So what if some are unfaithful? Does that nullify the faithfulness of God? And that, I think, is asking the question, wait a minute, Paul, you're saying that the, the mark of the covenant, that you're saying that the circumcision, which designated them as children of Abraham, heirs from uh, Abraham's promise, um, the, the disciples of Moses, you're saying that didn't count for anything? What does that mean? God's unfaithful because they didn't live up to their part? And, and he's, that, that's not the point. That's, that's not what's going on. It's not nullifying that, um, but their, faith, their unfaithfulness, and we can demonstrate that it doesn't nullify that 
if the response is correct. And so where does Paul go? Where he goes with that is he asks the question, well, let's talk about unfaithfulness for a moment. Let, let's talk about somebody being unfaithful to God. And so what he does is he quotes Psalm 51. And what he says is he quotes one section of it, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. So what he's doing is he's quoting Psalm 51. And in that quote, he draws in Psalm 51 in the context. And it's really instructive because what Psalm 51 is, is it is David's lament. And the title of the psalm is To the Choir Master. A Psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him, and after he had gone in, or after he had gone into Bathsheba, we know that story. That didn't go well for David. David was a man after God's own heart, and yet he sees a woman taking a bath, and he's like, "Bring her here." He sleeps with her, gets her pregnant, and then finds out, "Oh, well, now I've got to cover that sin, so um, send her husband home." And his her husband's at war. He won't go into his wife. He's like, "My all my troops, all my friends are out in the field. I'm not going into my wife." And so then David has him move to the front, right up next to the wall where he can be killed. And that's what happens. And so David thinks he's got it covered. He goes off and marries Bathsheba. Um, boy, she, had got, uh, she got pregnant really quick and had a baby early, didn't she? He thought he'd covered it until Nathan came and said, you are the man. You've done that. So here is the man after God's own heart, the, the king that they have loved and looked forward to. You remember um, the uh, lepers calling after, after Jesus as he's walking by, son of David. They were looking to David. David was this idyllic person. And what Paul brings up here is, so let's ask that question, does the unfaithfulness of the Jew nullify God's faithfulness in his covenant? And the answer is David. No, it doesn't. Watch what happens. So here's the, the, a little bit broader of the context of the psalm. David says, have mercy beyond me, O God according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. That's what Paul quoted. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. So where Paul goes is he asks that question, does the Jewish unfaithfulness nullify God's kindness? No, absolutely not, provided you use the law correctly. So what David did is he said, look, I know my sin. I have seen my sin. David or Nathan has, has confronted me with it, and I am heartbroken over it. And so the response was not, um, to, to add more laws so I can't get close to it. The response was, let the law do what it's going to do. And so he cries out, Lord, have mercy on me. He acknowledges that God is abundant in steadfast love and, and abundant in mercy. And he, he cries out, Lord, blot out my transgression. That's why he quotes that portion that says, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. It, it's, that's almost exactly how Paul is saying, look, that proves God is not faithless just because we're faithless, because God is justified in his word. He is blameless in his judgments. So whatever he does, if he condemns Paul or condemns David, that would be the righteous thing to do because David says, I have been guilty of sin since my birth. But if you will blot out my transgressions, if you will wash me from my, my iniquity, if you will forgive my sins, 
then you are blameless in your judgment even then. That's, that's great news. And that's what Paul is going to with the Jews here saying, look, you're counting on circumcision. You're counting on hearing the law. That doesn't count. That doesn't work. This is how the law should work. This is what should be happening in you, is you should be seeing your, yourself as uh, guilty before God, but God being rich in, in mercy and abundant in grace. So do you need salvation? Who needs salvation here? Everybody needs salvation. So what he says is, do, do, they, do their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? No. Their right to hope in God's covenant faithfulness. Remember the mark of this, the covenant, this, the uh, circumcision. Their right to hope in that. What they're wrong to hope in is their external conformity to that covenant. They're wrong to think that if I externally keep that, that's enough. So that's why he goes, he says, circumcision is a matter of the heart. And being a Jew is, being a, is a matter of the heart. It was never about external conformity. It was always about where will these things lead you? Will they lead you to closer relationship with God? Will they lead you to love the Lord? Or will they lead you into your own righteousness, your own thoughtful, uh, your thoughts of your, of your own um, um, sufficiency? So where has he left us here? <laughs> he starts with the irreligious, the Gentiles doing all these horrible things. He starts with the irreligious and he said they need salvation. Then he turns to the moralist, uh, the moralist who looks down on those things and says, oh, you, you shouldn't be doing those. And Well, don't you do those? And then he takes us to the Jew, this special category of people that, that have the signs of the covenant, and they, they have the revelation of God, and he says, they need to be saved. And, and where he's leading us is all, we all need to be saved, and how do we do that? Well, it's a matter of the heart. Where he ended, um, where... Um, I ended in Psalm 51, I think is, is the clue. It's the hint. He says, behold, you delight in truth in the inner being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. That, that's the hope. That's the key. And that comes back to the issue of circumcision. So here's the question, my friends. Where is your heart? It, it, don't look at the external for a moment. Ask, where is your heart? Why do you hate sin? Perhaps you say, oh, I don't like sin. I think it's terrible. Why do you hate sin? Not hating it is, is good, but it's not sufficient. Do you hate sin because you're embarrassed when you get caught in it? Or you're nervous that you might be caught in it and, and you might look bad? Or do you say it's an offense against God? Because what, what David said is against you and you only have I sinned. And I've heard people say, wait a minute, what about Bathsheba and, and uh, Uriah? Didn't you sin against them? And he, I don't think David is saying, oh, I didn't do anything wrong by them. What he's acknowledging is, Lord, you created Bathsheba, and you gave her to Uriah in marriage, and, and I violated that union that you created. I destroyed an image bearer, and so my sin is against you because they are what you have done. So is your offense, when, when you sin, are you, are you anxious because, oh, I might get caught, or somebody might think poorly of me, or something like that, or are you recognizing that it is a matter of, of, I have sinned against a great and a glorious God. So that's where we should be going. That's where we should be looking. That's where Paul is trying to lead us to, is it's not external conformity. Those are indicators. It's a matter of the heart. So we don't practice circumcision, or at least we don't look to it as a covenant sign. We don't say, you know, um, are you circumcised? So here's a question for us. What will we look to in order to cement our relationship with God? What, what external thing would, might we be tempted to look at and say, but I've got? Um, so is it maybe you said a prayer at some time? A friend led you in a prayer? 
Um, is it that you attend church often, um, or pretty regularly, or, or more often than not? Um, is it that I give to the church, I, I regularly tithe to the church, or maybe even you're a member of a church or two, you know, just to cover it, just in case. Are we looking towards those external things and saying, this is what's going to make sure that I'm all right with God? Well, here's the thing, and this is why it gets difficult, is those external things, they're good and you should do them, but that's not sufficient. So you said a prayer. Excellent. You should pray. And you should pray that God does that work in you. You should pray to God, not in order to get this thing, but because you're delighting in him and you're desiring more fellowship with him. You attend a church. That's great, but don't look at that as sufficient. That should be an indicator. And so you should attend church so that your heart might be changed by the fellowship, by the singing, by the word. That's why you attend church, not because you think that's the mark that's going to make you saved. You should give to the church. You should support the ministry that you're being blessed by. But at the same time, you should be following your treasure and make sure that it is not your bank account. For where your heart is, where your treasure is, there your heart will be. And you should join a church. You should be, you should be part of a church fellowship so that others can help you grow in those things, not so you can look and go, well, you know, it doesn't really matter how I feel about God. I've got all these externals. I've got these things. And then that way, in the end, your praise will not be from men. We won't look at you and praise you. Your praise will be from God. And therefore, we will, we will recognize you and we will worship with you. Um, that, that's the point. So uh, we've gone from the irreligious to the moralist to the religious and now to those who are clinging to external covenant signs, external covenant conformity. And, and where has Paul led us? All of you all need to be saved. Every single one of those categories, you must be saved. So what's going to happen next week as we start into the first half of chapter 3 is Paul is going to put the final nail in the coffin of the question, who must be saved? Is there anybody that's good enough to be saved on their own? And the answer is going to be a resounding no. And the way he's going to do it is he's going to pick up those oracles of God and he's going to unpack them and he's going to load them and load them and load them. So who can keep the law? Who, who's going to be good enough? And the answer is nobody. Nobody is going to do it. That's who is going to be that, that way. Where he's going to go after that, the second half of chapter 3, we finally get to the good news. He's going to answer the question, Lord, how can I be righteous? But what he's been piling on us to this point is the need to be saved. And, and that, again, is his, his message. So the, power, the gospel is the power of God for salvation. Well, who needs to be saved? What does it mean to be saved? Everybody needs to be saved. There's no category of humanity that, that you can say, this person is good enough, or this person has done enough, and they're good enough in God's sight. Everybody needs to be saved. Everybody needs to be saved in Christ. And that, that, I'll save that for next week, because that really is the main point of next week. So that's, that's what we'll get next week. And then finally, the week after, we'll find out how to be righteous. So it, come next week, but also make sure you come in the week after so that I can tell you the good news so that I can unpack for you. This is how you're made righteous. This is how Abraham was made righteous. This is where righteousness comes from. And it doesn't come from these other things. So with that, let's, let's close in a word of prayer. Lord, would you please use your word as that thundering hammer to shatter the rock of our hard hearts, to, to drive home that important message that none are righteous, that every single category of humanity that we've looked at, every single 
type of person that we've looked at, they all need salvation. And Lord, we fit into these different categories in different ways at different times. And therefore, we all need to be saved. But Lord, the good news is the reminder that Paul gave us right at the very beginning. The gospel is your power, Lord, for salvation. It is your power. It's not our power. It's not our work. It's not our striving. It's not our trying hard enough, Lord. It is your power for salvation. And it's your power of salvation to everyone. Everyone. Jew, Gentile, moralist, immoralist, uh, religious person, all of us. And Lord, the good news that I can't wait to get to is for those who believe. And so, Lord, thank you for that. And, and Lord, may this may you use your message to remind us of our utter and desperate need of you. And I pray that that would flame the fires of worship in us, that that would surge that desire to thank you because of what you have done, to be amazed at your work. And Lord, most importantly, I pray that it would make the cross of Jesus Christ gigantic in our sight, that it would show him to be sufficient and glorious and loving and all of those wonderful, wonderful attributes. So Lord, accomplish those things in your church. And Lord, lead us to worship again together. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.